Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. I'm Rabbi Klein. Rabbi Hartman. Rabbi Moss. Cantor Abelson. Rabbi Glazer. And I'm Rabbi Zimmerman. And we are thrilled that my first conversation is with Reverend Dwayne Davis, the current, for just a few more days, <laughs> pastor of All God's Children in Minneapolis, and soon to be the leading clergy reverend pastor of Plymouth Congregational Church at the end of December. And it is, um, for me, such an honor to welcome this conversation because I have been in relationship with all of the ministers of Plymouth Congregational Church for the over 20 years and um, really 30 years if you count from when I came as a young rabbi, but um, more so as I became the senior rabbi of Temple Israel and in 2001. And so you are um, I'm just so excited for you to be part of Plymouth Congregational and so excited beyond words that they will have you oh. as their leading <laughs> minister and pastor, because that really will be um, the ability for that congregation to not only heal, but to really thrive in the 21st century. So my first question for you um, is to just give, I love your personal story and you have told it in so many ways and so many times, but that to me is sort of the place I always like to begin is sort of the person and how you got to being, you know, um, lead minister in progressive churches. And so I just want to hear this story. <laughs> that is, I, and I will try to make this story, uh, you know, <laughs> succinct, but uh, uh, substantive. I am, I am the 15th child of uh, a Pentecostal minister and his wife, uh, a missionary in uh, the Churches of God in Christ. Those who don't know Church of God in Christ is probably the largest Black Pentecostal denomination in the United States. Um, uh, probably the world, I think it would be. Um, and I, uh, I grew up in Mississippi. I was born in Indianola, Mississippi, which is in the heart of the Delta region of Mississippi. And for those who don't know, that is also the largest concentration of uh, uh, African-Americans and uh, uh, descendants of the enslaved of Mississippi. So the largest uh, concentration of black people are in the Delta region. Um, I, I grew up, uh, like I said, the youngest of 15. By the time I was born, my, my father started off as, uh, you know, uh, started his life off, their life off as a sharecropper. And, and, and those who don't know what that is, that was, a very oppressive economic arrangement uh, where uh, 
you know, black people had no option, economic option or opportunities for jobs. And they did what they had uh, learned from their parents, which was working in the field. And uh, this was a, a way to at least do what you did, but the arrangements were so uh, unfair. Uh, in essence, they were always leasing and renting land, never with the opportunity of getting any uh, income from it. But by the time I was born in the 70s, <laughs> um, I, I had wonderful parents who understood something. They, they always knew and understood, even though they themselves uh, had a roundabout way of getting uh, not only their, their careers and their education, that education was the key. And so uh, I never knew anything other than the idea that one, uh, education was how you could make a way for yourself in a world that didn't uh, have an obvious path for you. But also um, that I was, there was, there was nothing wrong, different or strange about who I was as a black person. And, and uh, so as I got older, I, I, everything that seemed so natural to me uh, was very sort of jarring for other people. In essence, I, I walked like I belonged in the world. Uh, and, and for some people that was strange and off-putting that a, a, a kid growing up in the Mississippi Delta should feel as if he could do anything and be anything. Uh, but that's what they did. And, and I don't know if that was intentional or if it was instinct or the drive, but they sent all 15 kids to college. Wow. Uh, and, and I think about seven of us have advanced degrees and we're all scattered throughout the United States uh, doing our thing. Um, but another thing that I, I, and I think much to the chagrin of my parents, um, they really nurtured uh, the idea to me to, to ask questions and to find my voice. And that helped me in good stead when I had to confront them about uh, my disagreements with the Pentecostal tradition and, and how I could not be a part of it. And, and uh, as a, when I came out to them as a gay man, the, the real challenge that was for them. But that's how they raised me, to, uh, to speak up for myself, to make my way in the world. But uh, it all, all came uh, in full circle because... Um, when I left uh, Pentecostalism, I left the church. I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with the church. They don't need me. I don't need it. And I went off and went off to college in Washington, D.C., got into politics and thought, church, no, don't need it. I have everything that I need and I would never. Uh, but it's, it's so interesting how your path takes you. I was I was at my most successful in, in Washington, D.C. I had done all of the, I hit all of the benchmarks of working in politics, ended up in lobbying. I was the most successful, making the most money of my life. And I had this real uh, just call and drive to reconnect with faith. Uh, and although I uh, didn't go back to anything like uh, Pentecostalism and went into a Start exploring progressive theology and 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 uh, pursuing social justice in that way. Uh, it was enough for my parents. <laughs> uh, I think the idea of just uh, so I think one of the my my father has since passed away, but I think 
there's a little breathing more easily in my family that, uh, that whatever I'm doing, uh, I'm part of a community of faith and that brings them great comfort. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a story. That's a story. And so you came to Minneapolis. Again, another story that I just would love for you to tell about moving to the North side and, and, yes. and what, what you, um, met in people's attitudes and then the reality of that neighborhood that has become yeah. your own. Yeah. So I, um, I, I was working for the Episcopal church in Washington, DC. Uh, I, I was ordained in metropolitan community churches. Metropolitan community churches is a young denomination found in 1968 with a special ministry uh, to LGBTQ people. Um, and I, but I was working as the, a policy analyst for the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. And I had worked on uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act for the Episcopal Church and marriage equality, doing some great work in DC. And I told MCC that I wanted uh, to go in pastoral ministry. I wanted to go into a parish. And uh, so a lot of talking and, and I ended up having conversations with all God's children uh, in Minneapolis, which by the way, I will admit, and I tell them all the time, I was like, there is no way that I will end up in Minneapolis. <laughs> That's what I told myself. I, and largely because uh, I, if, if All God's Children had called me, it would be the first time they had an African-American uh, pastor. Also, the first time they would go with someone who didn't sort of come from the, you know, the tradition of Lutheranism and, and Midwest and that kind of thing. But anyway, I... Um, but one of the things I decided when I was went into ministry, uh, a lot of what what I began to really think about are things like uh, uh, a theology of relinquishment. Um, how do you not reinforce the status quo of power arrangements and 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 the way things work? And so one of the things that that called me to do is, is um, the places where you live, the people that you talk to, how do you give yourself a chance to know and hear what's really going on? And, 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 I, and a part of that was, was a reaction to how much of a rarefied world I lived in in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, my husband and I became lobbyists and, and um, that puts you in a in a certain type of category where you live and who you in, 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 uh, interact with. And I, I just felt that if I were going to speak to the real lived experience of people, uh, I had to uh, go back to a, what I grew up. I grew up in the poorest county in Mississippi, Sunflower County. And my father was a pastor of two churches in the I, you know, as I grew up, I, I grew up very privileged in the sense that I did not know poverty. I saw it, um, but it was only as I got older that I saw how my parents uh, uh, really lived and experienced it in their personal life. But when they when they got the advantages that others had, how they never separated or departed or distanced themselves, um, and so. Uh, as I as I started to think about ministry, and I finally talked to all God's children about coming here, uh, 
I told the, the realtor, uh, they were asking me, where do you want to live? We were looking for a place to live. And um, one of the things I said, because I also knew that there were, there were not many uh, black people in this area. <laughs> but I said, well, where, 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 are, where do black people live? <laughs> and the realtor, which was a, an odd question for him, and I think people rarely sort of are so open, you know, asking that question. And so he said, well, there is north side of Minneapolis and there is the Rondo neighborhood uh, in, in St. Paul. And I said, well, I said, since the, the, the church's address is, is in Minneapolis, so, well, look for me something in north side. And I didn't understand his reaction, but his reaction was sort of like, are you sure? Uh, and he, he wanted to tell me about my neighborhood without telling me without being offensive. Um, but I, and then I, I, don't, I don't quite remember what he said, but he said something like, you know, you'd probably be more comfortable. And it also because he knew who my realtor was in D.C., he, he thought he had a certain. <laughs> so he said, well, uh, I, I, I would look here and I would look there. And I said, well, no, I, I said, it's fine. Uh, I want you to find me something in that in that neighborhood. Uh, and so we, we, he did, and we started um, looking at places and I immediately understood, I mean, you know, I, I knew where I was going and we settled on a house and, uh, and, and he was, he still was trying to figure out a way to tell me that this may not be the kind of neighborhood I wanted to stay in. Uh, and then what I heard people from the congregation, some of the realtors there started asking me, you know, are you sure, Pastor, this is what you want? And, you know, let me explain, or do you need to see the, and I, and I kept saying, I understand. And, and, and I kept also trying to explain to them that, uh, you know, also I do, I do understand uh, what is going on earlier in my, my time in Washington, D.C., when I was at Howard, in Washington is where I went to school. Uh, that neighborhood is is a, a, a certainly a challenged neighborhood when I was going there in the '90s. So anyway, um, but that's what that's what I started to see. But here's what really, uh, Rabbi, what made me understand that I think I had made the right choice when we started to move in. One of the neighbors uh, came and said, "Are you the pastor?" <laughs> And I said, yes. And, I, and, and so I, I also finally realized like, well, Minneapolis is a small town because this whole neighborhood knows that a pastor has bought this house. She said, are you the pastor? And she said, do you know what kind of neighborhood you're moving into? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, yes. And she said, oh, okay, I get it. You're gonna rent this out. Oh. And I said, I said, no, I said, I'm going to live here. And two things struck me by that exchange is one, how people have come to expect <laughs> that you don't want to be their neighbor. Hmm. Uh, that you, hmm. you know, that the world is set up and these are the types of people who will be my neighbor and these are the type of people who won't. Hmm. And then the second thing that occurred to me was that there was an openness to the idea that 
things could be different, that somebody might be there if you look and and we you've got to know them, got to see it, and the things happening. And, you know, there have been some things, you know, there have been times here in the seven years we've lived here, over seven years we've lived here, there have been some shootings and things that you hear. And, you know, on this, you know, they check in with, we check in uh, with each other and see how each other is doing. Um, but in some ways, it was a test to me. The final analysis, too, is that the assumption about uh, people who live in neighborhoods, uh, they, they're just all so wrong, uh, all so wrong. So it's been a great blessing to be here. Uh, don't get me wrong, there's some frustrating moments I hate in the summer. You know, I get looked at when I'm going around picking up stuff and when we're, but at the same time, um, I, I just, the great blessing for me is that to assume, you know, the kinds of assumptions that especially privileged people walk around with, that I walked around with. Uh, are always just so mistaken, always so mistaken. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about your work in D.C., and I know that you, um, one of the interactions that we have had over the years um, is a conversation about, you know, Reverend Barber's work and yeah. the People's Campaign. So I'm just really wondering how... Um, you know, in so many ways, people bifurcate what happens inside a synagogue, what happens inside a church, the prayer right. that happens or to the work on the street. Right. And I think something that Reverend Barber does so beautifully is say, no, 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 no. They are one and the same. They are extensions of each other. And so I'm just wondering how you both theologically and practically see that work um, that you had in D.C., and now as a minister in inside churches, what right. that looks like for you. Right. You know, when I, when I was, uh, I was a congressional staffer for uh, 15 years, I worked for three different members. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also what, what also is, but I guess you can't get away from the way you were raised too. So regardless of all the privileges, I, my, my folks lived in a world where it was about, service and giving in, in, in taking care of people. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I tell people all the time, I, there are two things that I always remember. One, I remember on occasion, like, uh, <laughs> again, little spoiled kid. I remember when people would come to the door and I you know, and they're grown up talks. So I didn't care what they were talking about, but on occasion, what my mother would do would go into the kitchen and start going to the pantry and filling up bags and giving people stuff. And that was fine too, until she gave away my peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> but then, and, and then, you know, when you would hear stuff like, oh, you know, uh, come and help me. Uh, you know, my father would say, oh, come and help me. We're going to go and pick up, I need to go pick up a bed. We're gonna carry it to uh, uh, someone she needs a bed. And, you know, and, and these were things that went on all the time. It wasn't until I started working in politics and I started to see uh, that some of the things that I started to make the connections really quickly that how public policy impacted just about everything everybody did. And some of the things that we find ourselves into, the, the, the things that happen with uh, uh, social services and everything like that, some of the worst outcomes, or, the, or if you're wondering why it's not working, 
is that it was intentionally done through public policy. It, I mean, and, and, and that was the, the real shocking experience where I would see politicians who would make it harder for people to access things because they don't like the program. I mean, like ideologically, they were opposed to that. So they know how to use public policy to, to get some of the outcomes that they want so they can point out to the program and say, oh, it's not working or poverty programs don't work. And, and that was the real learning experience when I was a, a staffer. And then what I thought, I said, okay, I'm gonna use my skill to try to get at that. And so I, I started getting into strategy, how to do public policy and, 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 and make sure that I can get it and how to you know, advise members of Congress on how to do it so I can get what we want out of it. And as I, as I got more into it, unfortunately, I did get a little cynical. But then what I, when, when faith started, when I started to explore faith, one of the things that I found was a great freedom uh, uh, in, in, in what I saw in the biblical witness. Uh, the, the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah are, are boy, did they fill me with a lot of energy. And, and I said, you know, um, maybe where I could do something, uh, is with, especially with the knowledge of, of what I have, how it's done, maybe then something about that, that I feel more comfortable doing or feels more in my nature is maybe I could speak uh, with a prophetic edge instead of a pragmatic edge. Um, and I had to learn over time that as a preacher, as a clergy person, as a public theologian, I don't have to be uh, pragmatic. I get to say and name truths uh, vividly. And so there was a moment there where it was real uncomfortable. How do I move from this place of political strategy and ideology and, 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 and working rooms and compromising and all of that, and then get to this place? And, and, it, and I had to figure out my identity. I, I was, there was a moment there when I was in those two worlds and I didn't quite know and I wasn't quite comfortable. Uh, and, and what I love about uh, Reverend Barber, which re what really gives me, really sort of hits me where I am really most uh, excited, is that I don't have to, uh, I don't have to compartmentalize it. Uh, I do get to name the truth uh, and say it out loud. Um, and I do have, you know, I do get to, to get in there and then I can say, okay, I know what it takes to get it done. I'll give you one other story. I work a lot with Bishop Yvette Flunder, who is, uh, does a lot of work uh, uh, with, with queer uh, black people of faith, but also in, in HIV AIDS in Oakland, California. And I was doing some work uh, uh, on HIV and I was talking to her about some of my frustrations and and uh, and what I was what what she made me see was that you know I got into a policy room and I was I was getting back into the way that I used to operate as a as a, a congressional staffer, and she said something that really brought me back to myself. She said, "You're also a minister, a called minister." 
So sometimes you got to bring that into the room with you. And so that, that is, is the way that I sort of, it's not a neat compartmentalization by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I found myself uh, also really having a real sense of what it is mine to do. And so there are times where, yes, I can, can go back to the best of that strategic kind of engagement with it. But boy, I love getting up and saying, thus, what, thus saith the Lord, uh, to just remind people uh, that there's some things that are bigger than the pragmatism that got you into the room. Uh, or that, as the theologian Stanley Harwas talks about, that I am not at all interested in, in, in uh, privileging the politics of the world over the politics of the Bible, because the politics of the Bible doesn't look anything like this one. Uh, and so if you're having trouble understanding my politics, maybe you should go and read the book <laughs> and, and see where I'm coming from. So I, 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 love, I love that work. And here's what I also know, Rabbi, and, and it's from your tradition and it's from, from uh, the Christian tradition too, that uh, the, the, the measures of success uh, don't look like what, uh, what, what the politics of our world tells us that they are. Uh, and those are days when I say, you know, when you look at how people have changed their thoughts around LGBTQ people or, or even Black Lives Matter in just a short amount of time that it began, that you can see some kind of change in how people talk or think uh, you know, sometimes we have to think about what the measure of success really is. It would be perhaps irresponsible of me not to talk about Jewish-Christian dialogue and just right. what your experience has been around that, what in this new role, you know, yeah, the relationship with Temple, because I always say Temple's address is our mission and vision, not just geography. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we really take it seriously that we are in the city where most of our counterparts, other mm -hmm. synagogues have gone to the same, gone to the suburbs. I said, we don't need another synagogue in the suburbs. We have plenty of them there um, and they should be well, but I am going to stay here as, as right. leadership has talked about. Um, and so just the Jewish Christian dialogue is a really interesting um, reality where we sit today. And, um, and then, you know, I, I want another question just based in the, the events that happened this summer. But first, let's just stick with, with Jewish Christian dialogue, your experience in it, your um, hopes and dreams, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, so my experience began really, uh, uh, really, in, you know, certainly when I worked on, on, uh, uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, I had all of these relationships because I did, you know, work that that uh, the, the Jewish community was interested in in terms of, of public policy. And so, but when I started working for the Episcopal Church, uh, I was joined at the hip with uh, the staff at, at our religion, religion, religious action center. Uh, 
Ah, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> so all the so work. David, David, yes. David, a good friend, a good yes. friend. Yeah. So very, very. Uh, we did. We, you know, all the work we did on climate change, on poverty, on on affordable care act is, is with, with with the Religious Action Center. Um, and so that's where I really began to. Uh, you know, work on the kinds of, of social justice question, the questions of of power, and and and, and you know, really begin to to immerse myself uh, with the you know with, with the Jewish community in that uh, real space. But one of the things that I really, uh, when I became a, a lead minister, one of the things that I set out to really do um, was to always. Uh, be in relationship with the Jewish community. I don't know if you know this, but my first uh, year uh, as pastor, uh, I got us a group of us from all God's children to go to your community Seder. And I said, I, you know, I really wanted to be intentional about uh, helping uh, my congregants understand. And because I also have a lot of people who come out of the evangelical tradition, um, and they come out of a tradition, and one of the things that they want, they want a safe space to be who they are in terms of their sexuality and gender expression. But one of the things I always want to invite people in my ministry to do is that if you're questioning your tradition on that, then that's your invitation to question the theology, uh, and you should always be questioning theology in that regard. Uh, so that you do not reinforce the kinds of, of, of things that oppressed you. You don't want to reinforce the stuff you freed yourself from. And so one of the things I wanted to do was that, you know, there are some things in my Pentecostalism and evangelical that, that has just been just playing bad and wrong and misguided uh, in our conversation around Judaism and our Jewish siblings. And so I, I was going to be intentional about that at the very beginning. And also what I wanted to do, which, by the way, people loved and really uh, re resonated with that. But another thing that I wanted to do was intentionally uh, use the pulpit and the sermon, uh, my sermons, to challenge bad theology and received uh, bad theology. And so during the, the, the Easter, the Lent and Easter season, anytime that we read New Testament texts, uh, there is always a full discussion of antisemitism and the use of these texts and how we need to read them and what, what we're not going to read. Uh, uh, and the great blessing of that has been uh, from members who didn't know and never got it, never heard anything like this said, uh, was a real interest to go deeper. And then the second thing were people who were a little, who've always sort of had August children arm's length because they thought it was too you know, orthodox in some of its, um, um, and, and by the way, that's a whole nother story because I'm not orthodox in that regard. But, <laughs> but, but people who would come and say, oh my God, I am so glad uh, that you are really naming the way that we, the ways that we have, you know, 
done damage and, and misread and, and read badly and poorly. And so that has been sort of the ongoing way uh, that I wish, and again, I, and, and I don't stop. I always problematize those readings. Um, as a matter of fact, even, even uh, you know, I take some liberty, which some people take issue with, that even when we are reading scripture, especially from the Gospel of John, the way that I change words, uh, and, 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 and some people have said, you know, can you do it? And, and I joke, say, I can. Uh, we can have a whole debate about whether I should. <laughs> but I'm going to take the privilege and, of, of this and the authority inherent in this position to do it. But I, I am happy to say that I have gotten no, uh, no pushback, no challenge from anybody. And, and on, on the other hand, a real willingness to ask questions and engage and to say, yeah, I, I kind of I did it wrong. And so going forward, um, you know, one of the things that I, uh, again, Another thing that I, I sort of forecast for people all the time, I don't know how not to uh, do this work with people of all faith traditions, including my Muslim uh, uh, siblings uh, and, and my siblings of no faith. Uh, one of the things that I have even so tried to get all God's children to understand too, is that the, the how some people, especially some religious traditions, have uh, have made atheism into an epithet. And I said, you know, interestingly enough, um, sometimes atheism may just be a rejection of the theism that has been so horribly oppressive. In essence, that you might have a person who's willing to be in relationship with you if they understand that your theology and your theism isn't a, 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 a Trojan horse for status quo power arrangements. Maybe, maybe someone is ready to talk to you. Well, what I would just say is that I, you know, Michael O'Connell, who, um, when he was the, the, uh, the head uh, priest at the Basilica invited mm -hmm us to come on Good Friday and speak oh, yeah. about Judaism to his congregation. And in that tradition, Tim Hart Anderson invited me a few years ago um, mm -hmm. to talk about the last 12 words of Jesus, right? right. And right. I spoke as a Jewish mother, what his mother must have felt in that moment. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think it is part of, I hope, not always in practice, but in, in hopefully purpose that, you know, to have on Good Friday, I would, I'm just going to offer myself as a preacher in that moment, because that really is the question. And I never, ever want to disregard somebody's faith in the most important day of that year. So I, I um, just tell the narrative right. of my grandfather 
um, having, you know, being a, a peasant in a shtetl, but the baker, this family, Zimmermans were the bakers in the shtetl, uh-huh. and they would cool down the ovens on Good Friday, and all the women and children would hide in the ovens. Now, this was the turn of the century. This was in the late 1800s, mm-hmm. early yeah. 1900s, and, um, and because inevitably their shtetl would be put on fire on Good Friday because the riling up of those very words you're talking about. Um, And then 30 years later to think about what the reality was and how horrific that image is, but it's something to contend with and it's something to talk about. Um, So it is interesting to kind of have that conversation, especially around that Easter period of time. Rabbi, I wish I knew I could have called on you. (laughs) I will come. Just invite me. I I always love a good pulpit. And, you know, churches have such a stronger tradition in preaching than Jews do. So when I get to be on a pulpit and a church, I I thrive. I I get my my most, you know, sort of preachy place and preachy voice. So. Well, it's funny you say that because I, one of the things I, I, I challenge, I, I, I challenge a lot of people, you know, they teach us, they really immerse us in, in this history of, of those writings in seminary. Yeah. And I, one of the things I said to people, how, I mean, what kind of malpractice is it for us to know that history? and know the context in, 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 in which that was written and not let it be the disclaimer or even the, the, the jumping off point for a real discussion of, mm-hmm. of what this really is as opposed to what we are appropriating or what we, again, and another thing, you know, again, so my, my, my doctoral thesis largely is about how, you know, we how often we privilege the tradition as if the tradition itself uh, is not uh, infected and inflected by our hatreds, our our politics, our you know all of the great theologians to whom we the Christian theologians to whom we you know, they were products of a of a real mix of cultural political behavior. And how do we why how do we how do we assume that this received tradition comes to us all clean and unvarnished? So even even the misunderstanding of the text but also misunderstanding the tradition that we receive, because you just said yourself, you know, riling people up, that's a part of the tradition. And you, we've got to, we've got to get that tradition to understand and say, wait a minute, that's not the part that I, I need to come and bring into this, this space. <laughs> well, and it is an interesting piece, right? So, you know, the even if you're looking at Jesus, the historic Jesus versus the theological perspective mm-hmm. on yeah. Jesus as Christ. So, right. you know, that is a place that's really an interesting piece. Um, right. And John had a particular lens, right? He was so late that he needed to bifurcate. He needed to move away from where the earlier Gospels was a much more enmeshment of sort of followers of Jesus, but who were still Jewish, right? And so so it's such an interesting thing. And Jews do not get that at all. Like they do not know the history. It's so Mm -hmm. interesting. It's Mm -hmm. so 
Um, and so it's, it's that kind of reality of um, speaking John's words, but giving the lens. Like right. he needed to separate, just like religion does, right? Religion yep, has absolutely. both the inclusive part and the exclusive part. <laughs> exactly. Who we are and who we are not. And so how do we work with that? You know, because that is the power of religion in some ways. Right, right. That, that's why I love with that. Yeah, I love the work of Amy Jill Levine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, because she she does great work. I'm actually reading a, a, a her latest book uh, uh, on uh, how Jews and Christians read the same. Uh-huh. Thing. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Which is a wonderful uh, insight into to this. I, uh, so uh, you're 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 hitting me where I love to live here. Uh and 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 the 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 power of that is the one of the things I've also been really concerned about for Christians is the great wisdom that we're missing out on from our from Jewish forebears. The the great uh, the things that could could I think put a check <laughs> on on some of the worst instincts of Christianity. Uh, 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 when I when I read uh, when I read just some of the 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 Holiness Code uh, right uh, work. I mean, boy, and uh, in, in, in just terms of of, of neighborliness and and community and and, and uh, how to operationalize love of God and love of neighbor. Uh, you know, it's amazing how when you look at, you know, Western, 21st century Western Christianity, um, it, it honestly, it is, you, it is almost, it reads almost as if uh, capitalism organized a religion. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because I I think that Judaism as an ancient tradition did not have the um, compartmentalizations Mm -hmm. that more um, modern, and I put that into air quotes because in Judaism it's modern, but it's not so, you know, 2,000 years, I don't know, is that modern? Um, And so, you know, the idea of that compartmentalization of things that somehow Mm -hmm. you can separate where that Eastern ancient view of the world is what we're coming back around to almost in a new way so that it is, I keep telling everybody, you know, um, so, um, so again, it's that ancient tradition, that kind of large umbrella that everything, you know, if your ox scores my ox, it's a religious conversation. Yes, yes. If you find my dog in the middle of the road, you have a responsibility. It's in the Talmud. It's in our sacred text. You don't get to just walk past it. Um, And so it's, so for Judaism, I think it has, you know, our, our master story, our story as, as it's called, not a good word mm-hmm. to use anymore, but our 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 central story mm-hmm. has so much wisdom for today's world, and right. I th- and I'm not sure it did in the in the 20th century in the same way, in the sense that the theology didn't really thrive in right. progressive circles. 
the community did, yes. the organizations yes. did. But now our theology is here to really teach us. And in COVID, I mean, more than ever, and we yes, need it. Yes, yes, yes. And it's yes. like, and, and to see it disregarded in any sense, it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. It's interesting that you say it, Rabbi, because what I've been saying to people, when, when people talked about the, uh, you know, what's been going on with with the people who voted uh, for um, the current president and people have been in, in you know, and talking about the just sort of the cruelty that you know, the cruelty has been sort of brought in. And I said to myself, you know, but I think what is going on is that we are seeing the actual failure of, of church and commute, communities of faith somewhere along the line. We have we have given in or forgotten that we were the check against a world that was in it for itself. Somehow we forgot to inculcate people with the idea of love and empathy. And so if if if, if people are run around saying, no, I don't want to be responsible for people who are poor, or I don't even want to help, I don't want to talk, or it's their fault. I mean, somewhere. We have, I mean, even if you take, as you were talking about the early gospels, even if you take those gospels, much of the conversation about was how do you help people who are in material need? That's, that's what it was about. That's what, if you follow the historical Jesus, every encounter was not about some otherworldly transformation. The first thing was food need healing i mean the the things material things bodily things and somehow we got to a place where that's not even part of the conversation now it's like you know it's or that's <laughs> radical and it's, how, radical. it's political it's political <laughs> and, yeah. and you're like well yeah okay then i am political i'm not partisan because right. i don't want to be partisan i really don't it like it's an yeah because you know, they're both they're both the same when it comes to this <laughs> <laughs> we want everybody. But we just are if that's what political is, I you know that's what I've talked to a lot of a lot of people about lately. It's like I am political and not partisan. That's and that's so, what I say too. <laughs> so it's you know, welcome to the world. Like this isn't the worst it's ever been in the whole entire history of the <laughs> I mean like, oh please just stop. But <laughs> it's like, uh, I, yeah, I and it's horrible because it's our horrible. Totally yeah. get that. Right, um, right. But, but it's, you know, so right. Where we have, where I have said that, you know, we are, um, we fight the society out there. The norms and acceptable behavior that is outside these doors is not acceptable inside these doors. Right, the right. fact that you can step on anybody to get ahead is not the same place when we have a bat mitzvah of a child who's on the spectrum who gets up there and speaks her mind and shows us that she loves Judaism and loves her congregation and her family. That's the values that we have here. Right. She right. doesn't thrive out there. 
Right. She right. doesn't thrive out there. She's not she's not successful out there. Well, she is the number one success here. Because I can tell you there was a dry eye in that sanctuary when yeah. the, you know, 13-year-old who can do it all and does it perfect, there's no no one's crying there. No tears are brought. You know, it's beautiful that they're doing that, but mm. but they'll succeed out there too. Right. This is what today is here in our world. Yeah. Um and yes. so that, that that's that, that's one of that's exactly what I love that 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 what you just said. That's what I, I have said here. I said we uh, I I you know we're I I use the image of uh, outpost of the reign of God, and that image is if you go to a military base or an embassy in the an American embassy or an American military base anywhere in the world, when you cross the threshold. You are in, for all practical purposes, the United States. It's so true. I was in Morocco <laughs> when I was there, and I was like, oh, my God, going into that little, like, store inside yeah. there, you have all these American, like, products, and you're like, wait, I am in Morocco. Why would I want this? Exactly. <laughs> I am with you. I was there. Right. So that's what I said the church yeah. should be. When someone crosses the threshold, they should say, oh, my God, this is nothing like what I just left yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> nothing like it. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing like it. So that's what, when someone walks in, they ought to say, this is nothing like the world. Yeah. That's, that's how radically you should be in, in, in terms yeah. of embodying what we say we do. I always say we're social agitators, you know, like that's our, that's our role is to agitate, like to question what's out there. Um, No matter who's, what, what political party is, you know, like shame on us if we aren't doing that, no matter who the government is. Shame on us. And, and I, and I think, and that's what I, I say, the government should be nervous Every yeah, you time. say that all the time. You do say. <laughs> should be nervous when we come into the room. <laughs> but yeah. if, if you're not, and they're like, oh, we got this. Yeah, these are I our think friends. We, <laughs> I think we, 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 our, our influence and our effectiveness is probably limited. Well, that's been from the beginning of time too, right? So the Romans had the priests in the temple who were their puppet. You know, that is not a new scenario either. (laughs) That's very true. It is not a new scenario. And that that priest changed every time there was a change of government. Uh, Not a new scenario. So, you know, what does Ecclesiastes say? There is nothing new under the sun. So let's try and do our job in in making that a false statement. Um, (laughs) So I guess before we conclude um, is again, I just want to sort of speak to this time in Mm -hmm. the aftermath of George Floyd and um, all that has been the reality is Minneapolis. I keep saying we're we're in the you know front row of this at right. this moment, and how to make sure that our voice of vision is kept alive and not um, in any way dismissed or compromised, um, and what we can do 
as interfaith leaders in this moment? Because I think that's a really important question. Yeah. Uh, Rabbi, my, my challenge, uh, and, and, and it is a challenge because I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to uh, make it happen. I'm doing, I'm doing what I think uh, a lot of people are doing. I'm, I'm engaging in a conversation that I think might have an opportunity for transformation. I'm, I'm doing my own research and work. I'm, I'm you know, getting in the streets when I can. I'm doing what I can in, in my places of influence. But I keep going back to, as, as someone who is a part of churches, or communities of faith, what I'm wrestling with is how do I uh, help people understand that when any part of your community is suffering, then you are suffering too. And I always, the example I give is, your house, if you are trying to sell your house and you say this is a one, or if you just are proud of your house uh, and you just love it, but there is one room that is, is, is in, in bad shape um, and it, 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 it needs work, it, it needs attention, it needs help. And you, if you try to sell that house, no one's going to say, oh, the, the house is great. We'll just ignore the part of it that isn't. That's not how the, 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 the thriving of your house is perceived, the, the value of your house is perceived. The value of your house is if everything is okay. And so with what I've been, what I've been trying to figure out, and I'm, like I said, I'm wrestling with it, I haven't gotten there, is how do I get all of the people in Minneapolis understand that the quality of their life and the prospects and promise of their experience is diminished when any part of it is not doing well. Uh, that's hard. And, I, and, I, and, and I'm trying, and it goes back to what we were talking about. How do I get uh, the, the best of our traditions uh, to, to get people to relook and rethink? How do I not, how do I help people not see their faith as uh, one, just one other thing on the calendar for the week and the month, but something that is, is, is so integral to how they exist and, and engage and understand the world. It's, it's a big question, but what I, what I try to do with the ministry and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the teaching and the preaching is to help people understand that part of, of what you have come to know as faith, what uh, an essential part of it is uh, having that empathy and that love and that neighborliness is th that's the only counter uh, because then that will change how you see things. That will change. I don't, you know, one of the reasons that people, I think, uh, couldn't say Black Lives Matter or don't want to say Black Lives Matter is because somewhere along the line, someone told you that life mattering is zero sum. That I, I somehow the, the thriving and flourishing of life outside of my own immediate circle is a detriment to me. And, 
And and I think there's a part, you know, when you're looking at the house metaphor, so there's a Talmudic text that talks about the fact that what if you've built a house and you find out that one of the beams, the main beams, has been mm-hmm. stolen? Oh. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? That's what I feel like we're wrestling with today. We, we see the house, the United States, America, yeah. our communities. We see that a beam has been stolen, yeah. right? That, that slavery built this country. Yeah. What do we do with that stolen beam? Do we dismantle the house? Right. What do we do? And the rabbis wrestled with it in yeah. a major way. Like, what do you do? Do you destroy the house? And they came up with, <laughs> <laughs> um, you go and you pay for the beam, right? You reconcile the beam. Like dismantling the house isn't going, what are you going to do? You're going right. to hand a, a beam that is used, right? So that doesn't help. But you have to make it right. Justice right. has to prevail. And exactly. so and so you have to admit that that is a stolen being. The person who stole it or the people who stole it have to reconcile what that means to pay it back and mm-hmm. to make retribution. And what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Jewish community more than anyone knows this. I mean, as the Holocaust and survivors of the Holocaust, yeah. and all of that, we know this reality. And mm-hmm. so it's it that so for me, it's wrestling with the really hard parts and leaning yeah. into them, being honest with them, and having a day. Because if you ignore that it's a stolen beam and you just continue to live in that house, I really believe the beam and the carpets and the walls know it. I really yeah. believe that it lives with you, whether Absolutely. you know it consciously or unconsciously. And if you don't confront it, it's never going to go away, but it will live un. Uh, unnoticed, but with yeah. great fervor and great power. Absolutely. And that's why I keep telling me, we, we have this tendency where we look at the plan for the house and say, wow, doesn't that look great? And I'm trying to tell you, yes, but the plan is not the house. <laughs> the plan is not the house. So how do we do that? So I think that yeah. is, you know, maybe that's another podcast for another day, but I think that it really is leaning in and not and not using denial as our our first and foremost response to things or anger or blame and shame or whatever, because it, it doesn't create a society that we're proud of. And that's what the society out there is right now. Exactly. It's based on a lot of bad things and stolen beans. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's based on some really lovely things and wonderful things too, but you don't get one without the other. It's a, just, well, that's my wrestling. You know, I'm a political scientist by training. Uh, uh, and I, one of the things I argue with a theorist all the time is that I'm not disputing with you that the promise and ideal of America is, is imaginative and creative and beautiful. My concern is that every time I tell you that the promise has not been lived up to, you just keep pointing me back to the ideal and the promise. You keep saying, but look, look at what we, but you, I just told you. And you, so every time I tell you where the, we've fallen short, instead of saying, okay, how do I live up to the ideal and promise? 
we have people who just keep doubling down, like, this is the ideal of a, yes, I, I know. And I'm telling you, we haven't met it. That's what Dr. King did. Dr. King uh, was interested in, in radical black citizenship. And part of that project was to lift up the ideal in promised America and say, you didn't reach it. And here's how I'm going to tell you you can reach it. And yet, it seems after, after he died, we, we've, we've taken his, 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 uh, his celebration of the ideal in promised America, but totally forgot. <laughs> this is the part that I love about Judaism, is that it's deed that leads to creed, yeah. rather than creed like that. that leads to deed. Because creed <laughs> that leads to deed, you have this ideal, and supposedly it's supposed to get you to the deed. Exactly. But Judaism says, no, let's just do the deeds, and it ah. will lead you to that creed I if like the deeds that. add up. If they don't add up, you're not going to get to that creed. So I think it's the, I think we have to emphasize, and Christianity has that too. It in some ways has dismissed it because they saw it as something that they were, and it was Jewish, it was something else. But maybe to lift that up in Christianity again, the deed that leads to creed rather Mm -hmm. than the creed that leads to deed. I like that, Robin. You know, I'm going to steal that. (laughs) You steal that away. Go for it. It is yours to take. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am so looking forward to our continued conversation. To you, preaching from the Bima at Temple Israel and I would love to be at Plymouth Congregational Church. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this first episode of Temple Talks and look forward to many more so please subscribe. We always welcome questions and comments which can be addressed to tmoss at templeisrael.com and we look forward to growing this podcast along with you. Tell your friends. All right, have a good one.